0: We'll turn to 1 Corinthians 13. If you don't have a Bible, they're under the chairs in front of you. And if maybe this is your first time here, maybe your first time at a church, uh, you'll be helped by having a Bible open because what we want to try to do is walk through a passage and just explain what's there. And you'll find 1 Corinthians 13 on page uh, 1,150 in those Bibles, 1,150. I want to go ahead and read our passage and then do a bit more of, a, of an introduction Start reading in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 13. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face, now I know in part. But then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now, faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. We move from what is perhaps one of the easiest parts of 1 Corinthians... Uh, The early description of love in chapter 13, it's easy, not because it's easy to do, but easier for us to understand. We know what patience is and kindness, and we can read those passages and feel like we get a sense of what's going on earlier in chapter 13, to to perhaps one of the more difficult passages in 1 Corinthians, a passage that deals with, with tongues, as we saw last week, with this supernatural gift, with prophecy When it will be done away, Uh, uh, a description of this thing called the perfect that will come and do away with prophecy. There's understandable confusion sometimes as we encounter this passage, Uh, but it ends up being incredibly relevant. It's relevant in particular today as we lean into prophecy in this passage and try to understand it, because there is no end to people claiming to be prophets, claiming to speak from God and represent Him and declare new truth to the world. I'll give you some examples. One self-proclaimed prophet in the 90s claimed that Southern California would experience an earthquake so massive that California would be swallowed up by the Pacific Ocean. And he said that would happen by the end of the 90s. Another, uh, claiming to speak from God, said that uh, an earthquake would cause immense destruction on the East Coast uh, by the year 2000. I don't know what it is with the preoccupation with earthquakes, but that was focus of a couple at least there, saying, thus says the Lord, essentially, that this would happen. More recently, literally hundreds who claimed to be prophets speaking from God predicted uh, an outcome to this past presidential election that was different than what we ended up seeing. And even after the election itself and the inauguration in January, literally a hundred or more continued to say that it was going to be reversed by March. And March came and went and nothing has changed Now, to be clear, these aren't people saying, I I think the election results should have been different, I think there was mismanagement or some type of fraud, or I wish it would have been different. But people claiming to be prophets saying, this will happen. And they were wrong. How are we to assess claims like that? Are, Are prophets still active today? And if so... What do we do with error like that? Not only that, there's movements, whole movements that people start claiming to be prophets and they gain tremendous influence over the lives and wallets of people. How are we to assess that? Is that consistent with the biblical passage or the biblical pattern? Well, this passage will start to address that. It really leads into chapter 14. Uh, which will deal with contrasting tongues and prophecy. And so what I'm trying to do these couple weeks, last week and this week, is set the stage on these two gifts in particular so that when we get to chapter 14, we can more easily understand what's happening. This is a part two. So if you weren't here last week, I encourage you, um, if you have questions on some of this, jump on our website and listen to the message from last week. What we saw last week, we began with, Verse eight, and I want to remind you that that's the context here. That love will never fail, will never end. He's going to describe some things that will come to an end, but he says that love is not one of those things. Uh, love will never fail; it will never become irrelevant; it will never end. He'll he'll end the very end of the chapter by saying, "Love is the greatest." So remember, that's the context. But it's in the midst of that he gives some particular instruction on really tongues, the gift of tongues, and prophecy. Tongues is what we looked at last week, and I made an argument uh, that I believe tongues has, has ceased. If you missed that, though, you have questions on that, you wonder how we view that here, how we teach on it, I would encourage you to jump on our website or our YouTube page and kind of get caught up. But we're going to turn our attention today to the next emphasis in here. And the emphasis now is on prophecy. So look again at verse 8. It says, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, or I might just say prophecies, if there are prophecies, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. It's obvious there's a different verb being used there, a different description of what will happen to prophecy and knowledge compared to tongues. It says tongues will cease. I tried to make a case last week that that's describing it ceasing on its own after it accomplishes its purpose. But it says of prophecy that it will be done away. Something will cause it to come to an end. And that thing that will cause it to come to an end, that will render it useless, that will make it be done away, it says in verse, well, verses 9 and 10, look at that again. It says we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. So we end up with questions. What exactly is prophecy? When will it be done away? And what is this thing called the perfect that will cause it to be done away? I'm trying to work through those together. And I want to maybe warn you that this might feel a little bit technical or academic, but it's because it's so crucial. And so I want to take some good time to look at some passages, to define terms, we'll get more into prophecy in chapter 14 but i want to try to lay that foundation now i want to define it first prophecy i think simply we could give a longer definition but a simple definition is this prophecy is speaking truth revealed from god shows up really in all of the gift lists in the new testament it's a human declaration of divine revelation it's human speaking a human reporting Divine revelation, what God says uh, that He wants to have communicated. And there's really two aspects of this there's a foretelling aspect of predicting, and there's a forthtelling, which means to speak forth from God. And, And this is what we see prophets in the Old and New Testament. We see them sometimes foretelling a future event. Think of Isaiah in Isaiah 53 describing the suffering servant, the the Messiah, giving great detail about the death of Jesus 700 years before it happened. That is a foretelling, looking ahead to what's to come. We see it in the New Testament with, say, Acts chapter 21. In Acts 21, there's a prophet named Agabus. He's described as a prophet. This is in the New Testament now. And it says of Agabus, this is Acts 21, verse 10 and 11 came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belts and he bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. He's claiming to speak from the Holy Spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. He's not just saying, ah, Paul, I'm aware of some people that are against you and you ought to be Pay, pay notice, there's some people that want to get you. He says, no, this is what the Holy Spirit says. This will happen. He's foretelling the future. But there's also a forthtelling, meaning a speaking forth from God to encourage, to comfort people. This is the way it's described in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3. It says, but the one who prophecies speaks to men for edification, meaning to build up, for exhortation, to challenge, to correct and consolation to comfort. So it's not merely predicting the future. It's also bringing messages of warning, of comfort, of encouragement for people. We see this both in the Old and New Testament as well. So I think it's critical to see that Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy are, are, are the same thing. In, in the book of Acts, this book that stands really as a bridge from the Old to the New Testament, we see prophecy... And prophets mentioned 35 times in the book of Acts. And of those, some are Old Testament prophets that are being quoted you know, Joel, Isaiah, and so on. Others are New Testament prophets that are active at the time. Agabus would be one example. And there's not really distinguishing, they're using the same terms, it's the same type of actions of foretelling and forthtelling. Here's why this is important. Some make an argument that New Testament prophecy is is different now. That, that, that yes, in the Old Testament it was infallible. It was speaking from God. It had to be correct. Otherwise, there were consequences. But now, it might be fallible. They might make mistakes. They might not get it right. But that's okay because it's a different thing now. There's really not support for that, I think, in Scripture. It's described in the same way. It's the similar terms, similar words, similar actions. Uh, so I think we're meant to hold them to the same standards that, that will come up as we kind of develop this a little further so if this is what prophecy is speaking forth from God either in a foretelling or a forthtelling type way when will it be done it says here it's the perfect when the perfect comes prophecies and knowledge will be done away that's what we see in these verses in 9 to 12 look at that again it says, if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophecy in part. Notice again, it's not referencing tongues here. It says prophecy and knowledge. We know in part, we prophecy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. What's the perfect? Uh, there's, there's a few kind of legitimate interpretations there. A few kind of common interpretations. I'm going to Describe them briefly, and then I'll argue for one in particular. One is that the perfect refers to the completed word of God. So this is given in 1 Corinthians when the New Testament was still being written, and it wasn't completed until after this. And so an argument is that the perfect refers to completed word of God. And when it's finished, prophecy is done away, which kind of makes sense, right? Because because we have the written word of God. And so that's no longer needed. There's some good reasons to believe that that's what it's referring to. It does make logical sense. However, I don't know that it completely makes sense of this description in here. Because notice the contrast throughout the, these verses from the partial to now when the perfect comes. So we know in part, verse 9, we prophecy in part. When the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Okay, so this description of like childhood to adulthood, maybe you could see that. You know, now that we have the the word in our hands, a more mature knowledge. Verse 12, now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face. Think of looking in a mirror that's dim. Maybe you get out of the shower and it's all foggy. You can kind of see, but not really, versus seeing face to face. Certainly, we've got God's perfect word, but is it the same as seeing him face to face? It says, Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Neither what we have in God's word is perfect but do you feel like you have like full and complete knowledge of every question you have, or do you feel like there's still some things that are kind of fuzzy and confusing to you? I think most of us recognize there's some things that are still kind of confusing, not because God's word is not clear or not perfect. but We don't yet see him face to face. So I don't know that God's word maybe fits this perfectly. Uh, others maybe say it's when the church reaches full maturity, But again, when is that? Or it might be a maturing love, but that doesn't seem to match this description. I I think the the best way to interpret it, and this is the majority view, would be that the perfect represents the eternal state when we're with Jesus one day. We die, we go to be with him, or Jesus returns and he sets up new heaven and new earth. Then we will see him face to face. That's the description in Revelation 22, verses 3 and 4. It says, there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face. That time we will see him fully. We, We will know him, even as we're fully known. Even our faith and hope will be replaced by sight. Notice that's how it ends. At the end of chapter 13, it says, Now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. At that time, our faith will be replaced by sight because we'll see him as he is. Our hope will be satisfied because we will be with him. This expectation we're longing for and looking ahead to in faith, it will be fulfilled in him. So I, I think that the best way to interpret that perfect then is when we're with him. Before we press on to what are the implications for prophecy, I want you to just soak that in for a moment. If you feel like you're living in confusion, like you're... You're digging in the word, you're growing in knowledge of God, but life just seems fuzzy and unclear and chaotic. And how good will it be when that is replaced with just full knowledge of him one day because we see him as he is and we are with him. I I long for that day. I don't know about you. So if that's the perfect, and that will do away fully and completely with prophecy because it will have served its purpose, Where does that put prophecy now? Does this mean that prophecy is continuing currently? I don't think so. I I don't think that we can make that case from what we just read in 1 Corinthians 13, because I think that's looking to something yet ahead. But I don't think that means we have to conclude that prophecy is ongoing in a new revelation sense today. And I want to give you some reasons for that. Part of it goes back to some arguments we made last week. And so, again, if you weren't here last week, you might want to catch up on that message. But one of the points we made last week is that Ephesians 2.20 says, talks about the church having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That's this foundation laying of the church, the apostles and prophets, these unique roles. They're the early church to lay a foundation, a solid foundation that the church could be built upon. And as that was fulfilled, there wouldn't be an ongoing need for this. The apostles, we see, not continuing. They've accomplished their purpose. They they were uniquely qualified as eyewitnesses of Christ, seeing the resurrected Christ even. They were uniquely serving in that way, and so then what we end up seeing is the early church devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Acts 2.42 describes it that way. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were rallying around it, and that's what we have. That is what we have in the Word. We've got this revelation preserved for us. Now we have the prophetic word made more sure, is the language in 2 Peter. And in this passage, Peter is contrasting his own eyewitness experience to now this word that we have. It says, we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention. as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, which is probably a reference again to the coming of Christ. He says, we have this prophetic word. It's sure. Pay attention to it. And he goes on. To say, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is what we have in the Word that's been preserved for us. We have this revelation from God that is sure. It It is in that sense reliable. So that's what we rally around for our teaching. So those that that argue that prophecy continues today in a direct revelation sense, where they can say, thus does the Lord, and they're speaking for the Lord, they find themselves having to make one of two positions. One is that it's continuing today, and it's 100% accurate, it's authoritative, in which case, they're putting it on the level of Scripture, the other is to say, and, and this is more the argument, no, it's it's continuing today, but it's, it's fallible, it has errors, um, it's not authoritative in that way, but then you end up changing the way prophecy is described, both in the Old and New Testament, to arrive at that conclusion. So while I don't believe that the perfect is referring to the, the word doing away with, with prophecy, I, I do believe that as the word, the canon of scripture was completed and closed, that that did kind of bring an end to this ongoing direct revelation. Now, there will still be some prophecy in the future. We know this because uh, Revelation chapter 11, verse 3, describes the way that God will raise up two prophets during this great tribulation period, and for three and a half years they will speak for God. And, and so that is prophecy yet to come. And, and so it hasn't fully been done away. There will be some use for that yet in the future. But we shouldn't be expecting ongoing revelation today Uh, some who believe that direct revelation from prophecy has ended today do say that it it can still be applied in an ongoing way as people powerfully apply the word of God to real life today Uh, John MacArthur would be one that holds that view A guy that I, I really esteem that would be his view that it continues but not in a direct revelation sense more of a explaining scripture sense Uh, While I respect that and I see how it fits with this idea that prophecy has not fully been done away, it doesn't seem to me all that different from the gift of teaching. And it seems to maybe be a little bit different nuance for how prophecy is described. So I'm not sure that that's the best way to take it, although I think there's some good reasons for that. Maybe you're not convinced, though. Maybe you're not convinced and you think, well, maybe it doesn't seem like a closed case. Maybe it is ongoing. I want to give you a few things to consider. Throughout the Old and New Testament, we are told that we must test prophets who claim to speak for God. We must. The, the danger of false prophecy runs through Old and New Testament. Almost every single book includes a warning about this because it's so serious for somebody to claim to speak for God and to mislead people. So we see statements like this. This is Jeremiah 14:14. 14, 14. Then the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. It's falsehood. They're claiming to be speaking for me, but it's false. I have neither sent them nor commanded them nor spoken to to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility. It's the deception of their own minds. It says, watch out. There's going to be people that claim to speak for me, and they're, they're lying. They're not accurate. They may be deceived themselves, but it's falsehood. Matthew seven fifteen, Jesus says, "Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothes, but uh, uh, clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves." Jesus Himself, kind and gentle, Jesus warned about false prophets. First John, chapter four, even with a beloved at the beginning, uh, a compassionate reminder to his people that he cares for he says do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world so we must evaluate somebody who claims to speak for God but how how do we test a prophet I'm gonna give you three and these are found in the Old and New Testament both somebody who claims to speak for God I, I think that that has ceased right now that's that's it's not going on currently but, but if it were to be or somebody claims to be, what are some three, what are the three tests that we should use? I'm going to give you them. First, does their teaching match what God has already revealed? Does it match what God has already revealed? God has already explained himself. We have it recorded in scripture. Does it match that? In Deuteronomy chapter 13, it's a little bit longer passage, so I'm not going to have it on the screen, but you can turn there if you'd like. This is what, what it says of somebody who claims to be a prophet. It says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Did you get that? He says, even if he comes and he does a miracle, he pulls it off, maybe it's a fraud, Maybe it's somehow demonically empowered. It doesn't say. But it says he even seems to be able to do a miracle. But then he says, let's go after other gods. He says, do not listen to that prophet. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. And you shall keep his commandments. Listen to his voice. Serve him and cling to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. High consequences there for somebody who claimed to speak for God. I don't think that stoning that need to put them to death continues today, but that high consequence, high accountability we see there, even continuing in the New Testament, in Galatians 1.8, it says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. It says, if it's contrary to, to what we have, don't listen to it. He is to be accursed. So the first test is, does it match what God has already revealed? One person who claims to be a modern-day prophet uh, not long ago claimed that the Trinity actually had nine members in the Trinity, Other than three, there's actually nine. So as if the Trinity isn't already kind of confusing enough, right? He says, no, there's actually nine members there. And he went off with this kind of long explanation and claiming to be a prophet. That would be a violation of this clearly because it's contrary to what God has revealed in his word. Second, are their predictions about the future accurate? If they are claiming to tell what's to come, does it actually come to pass? Deuteronomy, again, warns about that. Deuteronomy 18 now, verse 21 and 22. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? That's our question, right? How do we know? How do we know if this really isn't from God? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, not just saying, this is what I think will happen, but in the name of the Lord. The Lord says, this will happen. If that thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. She goes on in the context to again impose the death penalty upon that situation because it was so serious for somebody to claim to speak for the Lord that this would happen and then for it not to come true. Uh, Can you imagine the seriousness that that would lend to this? And maybe the pause it would give to somebody to say, think I'm going to say, thus says the Lord, and this thing's going to happen, but I know there's a pile of rocks waiting for me if I'm wrong. Don't you think that would cause somebody to maybe be extra careful before they spoke? Because it was so serious to claim to speak for God, and it must come about. Jeremiah 28, 9, the prophet who prophesies of peace. When the word of the prophet comes to pass, then that prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. So if it does come to pass, that's an affirmation that it was really from the Lord. Those who claim to be modern day prophets have a terrible track record with this. And, and they know it. That's where that redefinition of prophecy comes in. Uh, I'm gonna give you an example, and this is from their own words. It's, it's quoted by an article from a, a guy named Nate Buzenets, who's done some really good writing on this. And, and he quotes uh, from two people, a guy named Rick Joyner, talking about another guy named Bob Jones, who would both claim to be kind of ongoing modern-day prophets. Nate Business introduces the quote this way. He says, By their own admission, proponents of the modern gift of prophecy readily acknowledge that, mo- that modern prophecies are often inaccurate and full of error. Just to give you some examples, here Rick Joyner says, and he's commenting about Bob Jones, he says, and he quotes now from this guy Rick Joyner, who, along with Bob Jones, claims to be an ongoing prophet. He says, There is a prophet named Bob Jones, not affiliated with the school by that name, by the way, who was told that the general level of prophetic revelation in the church was about 65% accurate at this time. Some are only about 10% accurate. Did you catch that? He's saying, of modern prophets predicting what's to come in the future, who claim to have this gift, they're only about 65% right. Is that what Deuteronomy says is the standard? Like, at least if it's a D, (laughs) Would you want a heart surgeon working on you who breathes through med school with solid D's all the way through? Like That doesn't sound good. And, and, and even if you're like, "Well, it's more than half the time, that's not the standard in Deuteronomy. It's not more than half the time. What they do is they then change this definition, saying, "Well, it's, it's, not fa- it's not infallible today. It might have errors. it might be inaccurate. They actually base it partly off of what we just read in 1 Corinthians 13, saying now we prophesy in part. Well, the emphasis here in 1 Corinthians 13 is not moving from error to accuracy, but just from incomplete knowledge that we have now to full knowledge when we're with the Lord. It's not error to accuracy. It's incomplete to to full and perfect. Third test. Are they characterized by personal holiness? Again, this is the standard that the word puts there. Not perfect living. We know that's true of only Christ alone, but is there a, a is there fruit in their life? Is there a pursuit of holiness? Jesus in Matthew 7 again, Matthew 7, 15 to 17, beware of false prophets, we just read this, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. This is by their fruits, by their lives. That reveals really who they are. Second Peter, it's even more clear. Second Peter two, one to three, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. That's this false teaching part of it even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon upon themselves. And then notice what it says next. Many will follow, many of these false prophets will follow their own sensuality, this rampant sexual sin. And because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. Could there be a better description of the last 20, 30 years of televangelists and then the scandal in society? As somebody with this prominent, claiming to be prophetic ministry has this huge fall related to maybe a hidden adultery, something like this, and it's just scandalized in the public eye. The truth is maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Sensuality and greed, it links those as two things that would characterize these false prophets. So is what they say consistent with what's already been revealed? If they predict something, does it come to pass? And is their life characterized by personal holiness? Standards that we should hold somebody who claims to be a prophet now or in the past, we should hold to that standard. I want to wrap up with this, though. And especially if you're listening to this thinking, oh, like, I really want this to be ongoing. You feel a sense of loss if it's taken away. What the word says is we have a great prophet. We have a living prophet. And it's Jesus. He's the true and living prophet. He's the one that we need. In Deuteronomy, Moses was told that after him, one would come a prophet, a great prophet. And in Acts, that's quoted in saying, that's Jesus. Is he more than a prophet? Yes, but he's also a prophet. His words are always true. His predictions were always accurate. His character was Flawless. And in Hebrews, it points to him as the greatest revealer of God because he is God himself. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, he's done this long ago. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. We look to Jesus. He says, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. His words are true, his words are reliable. And he's living because he's raised from the dead. He's living because we have his living word that we can follow. So later in Hebrews chapter 12, it appeals to us to listen to him. Hebrews twelve twenty-five: See to it that you do not refuse him, and in the context it's Jesus, who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. It's the prophet who warns who calls. Is perfect. And not only is he a prophet, he's our sacrifice. Not only is he a prophet, he's our priest. Not only a prophet, he's our king. All that we have, all that we need is in him. So if you haven't already, I urge you, come. Come to him who calls.